just imagine what you can do in building with others. That will unlock so many things in your world. It will unlock your dreams and accelerate and amplify things like you wouldn't believe. It's just amazing. Top leaders, meaningful conversation, actionable advice, bulldoze complacency, ignite inspiration, create impact. Produced by Southwestern Family of Companies. This is the Action Catalyst. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Hello, Action Catalyst listeners. This is Adam Outland. Today's guest is Chris Deaver, co-founder of BraveCore, helping leaders be more creative and creatives be better leaders. With time spent at Apple, Disney, Dell, and working alongside Stephen Covey, Deaver brings his experiences together in the book Brave Together, which we'll dive into today. Chris, great to meet you. Likewise. Thanks, Adam. Are you in uh, West Coast? I'm in the Bay Area, so San Jose, uh, south part of it, a little town called Gilroy that's the garlic capital of the world. Garlic capital of the world. Yeah, that, that's our claim at least. And I, and I can vouch for the garlic fries, but uh, the, the garlic ice cream, don't don't ask me about. I don't, I don't have anything good to say. So. Oh, man. Well, I, I'd actually love to start maybe a little bit earlier in life. Was it your one of your first professional experiences to, to work with Stephen Covey back in the day? Yeah. Yeah, that was my uh, kind of dream. I, I, I listened to the audio, his audio tape of The Seven Habits. I had on a, I had a Walkman, so this this will date me. Um, you know, Sony. It was a classic. You know, I'd go for a, you know a jog or a run, and and I had his the the Seven Habits tape, and I just listened to it constantly, to the point that it literally broke. I think it was like a thousand times, and uh, I just couldn't get enough. I thought this is the coolest thing. Uh, you know, it's about principles, it's inspiring, and it translates into business and personal development. And I thought that's 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 where I want to be. I want to be in that space, uh, and so. You know, fast forward. I had the chance to connect with with Stephen himself. Uh, he's he's. Uh, I was at BYU, and he has connections there, and lived in Provo. So you know, it, it all kind of happened. Just I guess I'd say randomly. I was very intentional, uh, but it was it was kind of a, a backdoor in. His son had a uh, it was like a network marketing uh, business meeting at his house, and my friend said, "Hey, this is your chance." Like I said, I'm not interested in signing up for some random thing. And he goes, "No, but it's at Stephen Covey's house." It's like okay, so cool. Uh, so I end up walking up the stairs, this nice big house, and uh, and I look down the hallway and I see uh, this bald guy. I'm like, that's, well, you know, older guy. I thought, there's only one of those around here, uh, but I'm not going to chase him in his own house. That's a little awkward, right? So I kind of step towards the door, or the front door, and I and I look at the garage. And he, he pops out of the garage, and I think his wife, he and his wife are going to a Christmas party or something. So he's putting gifts into the car, and I walk over, and I, and I just thought, okay, now's my chance. And I said, hey, uh, you know, Steve, and I... I really appreciated your books. You know, I, I, they've made a difference in my life. And he looks me in the eyes really deeply and he goes, we've met before. And I said, um, I feel like I have, I, I've, you know, I've read your books that much that I feel like I know you. And he goes, no, we, we've met before. And, uh, you know, oddly enough, I, I'd had a, I had a dream years before about us meeting and I, I don't know, you know, sometimes these things just happen for a reason and you just connect. But from there we had him come speak at, at, at an event and, uh, we started, uh, as, as we were doing this mentoring nonprofit, he said, I'll be your PR agent, started spreading the word and he endorsed our work. And it was great. I learned a lot from him. You know, one of the things he said that's st always stuck with me that I'm striving to work on to this day, he said, you know, we have two ears and one mouth and it's the right proportion <laughs> for listening. So that's my introductory work with Cubby. 
That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, how much of that influence do you feel like carried over to uh, what you do today with Brave Core and you know the, the the book that you wrote, Brave Together? Yeah, I think there's just a lot of inherent wisdom in questions, and I think especially needed in the world today. Right? We're inundated with answers. Um, you know, Google is like every tool has answers, right? Spitting out answers for us. Um, and we have to kind of cut through this noise. And then when our, in our interactions with others, um, you know, this is something that both Covey, uh, I, I worked, I had the chance to be at, at Apple and, you know, uh, Steve Jobs would, would do this in meetings. He'd listen a lot. He would pivot and start to disagree with himself at times. And, uh, you know, uh, people would get confused by this. So, well, your CEO, like you had a position and he'd say, well, no, this, this, this answer is better. Right. So a 180, uh, and that's the power of listening. Uh, Ed Catmull, who started Pixar, also um, his dilemma was he's a really smart guy. You know, had a PhD, and he said when in the early days of the company, he would just uh, answer fire off answers to questions everybody had. You know, we had the chance to meet with him, and we thought this is he's the Yoda, right? Of of creativity and principles. You know, Creativity Inc. that has you know has a cubby flavor to it, but it's um it's specific to Pixar's principles of their culture, right? And so we thought, well, this guy's Yoda. We're going to click the wisdom button and he's just going to dispense, you know, the wisdom. And he didn't. So we ended up sitting there, my, my friend, uh, co-author and I, and we're just sharing and he's listening and asking really great questions. This goes on for 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes. And at one point I'm thinking, whoa, this is okay. This is, it, it was, it was an interesting dynamic. So I paused and I said, Ed, what's your leadership philosophy? And he said that he said, I lead with a question. And uh, I think as we come upon this time, especially, you know, all these technologies, AI, you know, and all these tools and, and things that are coming at us, well, there's a unique opportunity to uh, unlock, you know, the power of questions. And, you know, at Pixar, uh, Ed and team, they would um, send out a question a week in advance. So rather than an agenda, they would send out a question to just let that marinate, creates that space. You know, there's much more anchoring power in questions. Yeah. It's actually harder to come up with the right questions first than to work on the answers, right? Definitely. But yeah, the, the feeling and definitely the business world, you know, to this day, it's a, it's a struggle or it's a wrestle is, you know, and we call it in the book, you know, the expert model, right? There's an expert model of, uh, you know, it's a temptation to kind of show up and kind of say dump expertise, but, you know, put answers, you know, kind of pour answers into the people or into the conversation. And, um, you know, and in a world where there are so many answers, uh, it, it does beg that question of, well, how do we create, how do we unlock the space for people to be brave? I saw this at Apple where you had, you know, people that had written white papers that like nobody else had done it, right? They, their whole PhD was about this technical aspect of something. And yet they would come to the table with kind of egos off the table, um, a, a humility to the universe, an unanswered question, right? That they had to kind of come together to pull something out of the ether with a belief that that could happen and and something that didn't exist prior to that meeting that they were bringing their perspective and others were bringing theirs but that the magic would happen and, and essentially you know something that would be a revelation yeah and, and you had such a career you know being senior hr leadership at walt disney and apple and as a teenager in high school like how much of this did you predict was going to be your life path <laughs> I was just trying to make it through, you know, survive. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know that I imagined exactly this course. I, I know, I knew something about, I enjoyed creativity. 
I also would find myself in those places thinking kind of commercially or about the business world. And, you know, be, behind all of this in the background, my foundation had started, I'd say, really, my dad was a scoutmaster, so the Boy Scout program forever. And I, I just started, you know, I, I begged to go on these big trips, but, you know, 50-mile hikes and, and these things where I didn't realize at the time, but I'm observing a version of leadership yeah. Right among these kids who are like trying to figure this out, and they have these responsibilities. Hey, patrol leader, go build it. You know, put a tent together. Go find. You know, make a fire, and and all the messiness of that. And you know, my dad, he was pretty good at like just okay, go figure it out. The other dynamic that happened for me was I was on an achievement orientation path. You know, I, I did everything to get Eagle Scout at twelve. I, you know, was into you know grades and even in college, I studied animation. Uh, at BYU, this is a precursor to them becoming, you know, they're they're recognized now as really, the, you know, one of the best in the world at that. But this was like the first class. But I got there and I wrote a letter to Roy Disney. I wanted to work at Disney. And uh, I get a call from a recruiter. I didn't know this was going to happen three or four months later. I, I forgot about the letter. But uh, this recruiter calls and says, hey, um, this is Lisa. You know, Roy said to, to talk to you. And, uh, you know, there's like pixie dust flying everywhere. This is, I've wished upon a star and it's actually happening, right? And all those things, all those achievements in my life, it all led to this moment, right? It was the weirdest thing to actually have my heart override this where I said, thank you. And, and I had to hang up the phone. It was an existential moment that I realized, hey, right company, it's part of a dream, but that's not right now. It's not what you need. And it was a shock to my system. Yeah. Wow. I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't understand it. But I, what I'll say is, hey, achievement is great. You know, we all have a baseline of fear, right? Conscious, subconscious, in work or life. And it may be in the territories that are new for us, that were, are unexplored, some unknown, right? It, and this happens on a daily basis. It's like, I don't know what's going to happen with this. Sometimes it's financial. You know, Maslow's kind of hierarchy to me. It's like, well, I don't know how I'm going to make that work. Yeah, you know, we break out of that by being brave. And in the achievement world, you know, that can turn into hacks and hustles and just optimization of what you know how good can we get hmm. but what what I learned and what the focus of this book is is that there's a higher order approach which is being brave together and and that when we unlock that shared dream uh, or shared future just magic happens yeah so obviously you had some self belief and self confidence in your value and your worth to I guess existentially say that that wasn't the right time. But I, where do you feel like you developed your self-worth and value to teach this? Like, where did that come from? That's a great question. Uh, it's a really great question. I think it's innate. I mean, I think we, I, mean, I have great parents. Uh, I love a lot grandparents, you know, people have been encouraging in my life. And my dad was an engineer and uh, you know, to his credit, the other thing that he would do, it was very co-creative. I didn't know at the time, but you know, I'd have an idea for something and these are crazy ideas. Like, I want to build a Spider-Man suit. I want, I want to create a, you know, a, a hovercraft. And, you know, it's easy for a dad to blow that off. You're like, okay, or just, oh, that's nice, you know. But he'd actually sit with me and start to design whatever it was. And actually, we'd start to build those things. So it, it became real and it became an experience where it's like, wow, you can actually come up with a thought, start to shape it together and and bring it to life. So there's, there's some good parenting wisdom in that too, for all the parents listening, uh, do, do stuff with your kids because it makes a tremendous impact. Yeah, I think so. I, th I think for leaders too, and managers is we have this dilemma where we look at it as such a, a box of employer, employee. Uh, and then that's so easy when we think in those terms, right? Like Covey would say, you know, to change people's behavior, change their 
perception of their role, right? But so often this employer-employee relationship in our minds dictates that, well, we've got to behave, then it's very kind of disciplinary or performance-oriented and results-based, which just honing in on orientation only or, or achievement only, it doesn't really motivate or inspire, but it, it begs the question of what if, right? The what if is, what if leaders, what if managers saw themselves as co-creators? And what if they saw their employees as co-creators? And so when they have those ideas, and one of the best leaders that I ever had, uh, he would say, what if you're my shoes for a day? Like, what would you do? He really honestly wanted to know, you know, and, and usually it's something I was trying to, I was wrestling with. I'd say, well, this is what I'm trying to figure out. I'd, I'd, I'd solve it this way. And then he'd start to he'd take that idea in the air and just start to you know, shape it with me. And then he would go that direction and say, well, let's do that then. Huh. And I thought, well, really? That's the simplicity and the power uh, of co-creation. Reminds me of the principle of buy-in, right? Like it, you, you take that approach to organizational leadership and a powerful vision is a shared vision. And so you're you're equipping people to, to have their fingerprints on whatever it is that's being done. And so the buy-in is going to be infinitely higher. Definitely. One of your co-creation principles is turn pain into power. Yeah. I think that one more than any other was most applicable. You know, the world teaches a lot that, you know, no pain, no gain. And, and I think that fits in kind of the brave alone category. Um, and I'd say there's nothing wrong with it. Well, that could lead to burnout. And I think we've seen that, right, in the pandemic and you know, some of the fallout from that and, and where people have readjusted, you know, their lives. Uh, but yeah, more specifically for me, if I were to pick a company that really had the pain, I mean, I showed up at Dell and I was fresh off my, you know, my game, my MBA, you know, out of that mentoring network. And this was before, you know, Disney or Apple. I, as far as a business professional context, I wanted to go to those companies, but, you know, they didn't give me the time of day. They were on my dream list. So I, I kind of shelved that. I thought, you know what, what's available? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and Dell is a big company. Uh, they'd had some success. Of course, I didn't know. I got in the organization, this is about 2008, give or take. And uh, the three or four VPs, SVPs that hired me, they were gone in three or four months. There was constant rounds of layoffs happening every three to four to six months, massive. And the stock price, you know, tanked down to like a quarter of what it was. And um, Dell had had grown in numbers as a, a, a over the prior year, years before that, um, as far as business and and growth with the PC, you know, direct model. But what had started to happen was that it got deteriorated as other companies like Apple took that approach. You know, I show up there and I'm asking all these existential questions. I realized like, wow, this company's got some problems. But what I also realized was to Dell's credit, what they're good at and what Michael's particularly good at is being extremely resilient and extremely open to even criticism, right? And so I formed a team and we started to look at these questions and wrestle with what does this mean as it relates to a hopeful future? And if there is a hopeful future for Dell, how do you start to build that? And what are the elements required for us to get there? And so when we looked at holistically at what direct model as a business model had meant, it turned into a leadership model at Dell. Hmm. And so we had to empower innovation. Uh, they had to approach going back to the lead with a question. And so we realized that there has to be a shift here. And the pain, so that was the pain, right? Talk about pain. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like this is existential. The sky is falling. We may not have a Dell, right? In a few years. And so this team, we started to shape what that future could be. You know, they wanted, they, they had a target of wanting to be $200 billion company. Mm -hmm. I said, this isn't going to happen if we have this, the state of flow that we have. We have to shift how the culture operates. And to ground that, 
in an anchoring question, we positioned this as what we call the connect model, which was empowering innovation, you know, listen first and, you know, keep those things that work, right? Keep execution. That's good, right? But do it in a contextual way that's with others and think about it as a platform, right? How do you connect dots with each other as a leader, right? In your teams. And then also with partnerships. I said this word to Michael and, uh, Long story short, I show up in the my manager's office and she's like, what was this email to Michael? And I said, well, he was in all hands. He said he wants ideas, right? We're struggling. We're, you know, we have some challenges as a company and he asked for ideas. And she goes, well, you know, they say that sometimes, but you know, they don't really. I took him on his word. You know, the next day, Michael at 5 a.m. sends a response and he says, huge respect for this initiative. Hmm. What are the next steps? Uh, we started a think tank called Game Changers where they would submit ideas, kind of a Shark Tank type experience. And uh, billion dollar ideas came out of this. You know, people that had just been in the company, not at, they, nobody asked, right? Nobody ever asked like, hey, do you think you could build something else? Or you know, So a mobile app emerged out of this billion dollar idea, other things. And, but what happened was the culture started to shift. Yeah, they were able to turn that pain uh, into the power uh, and it took a collective approach you know, to do it. It was shared. You know, follow true north is one of your other principles. I, I feel that, what you meant by that, I think, is the alignment um, once you've uncovered and hopefully discovered the principles, right? You know, how do you help put the guardrails on on meetings and conversations? How do you put the kind of the bumper lanes in place so that people stay headed the general right direction? Yeah, I think as a, as a, just a, a practical question, you share principles or you know first principles right, are key, right? We talk about you know landing a rocket right from you know the moon back to Earth. And, you know, it's not just a matter of like, hey, let's just, you know, throw some materials, aluminum or this or that, right? And it's, you know, we have to figure, what are the what are the first principles? Well, gravity, um, you know, these always key elements. And I think building intention into things like meetings, into one-on-one conversations. And it doesn't have to be all mapped out, right? Where we have it all buttoned up and, uh, you know, make it a show. It's, it's um, you know, the first principles could be shared wisdom, right? Which is leading with the question, deep empathy, right? Which has to do with uh, another principle of ours, make others the mission. But these kinds of things that help set the course, and I think more specifically for you know, meetings is allowing space for brave conversations to happen, right? You could call it brave space where people feel inclined to share and mm-hmm. that they're not punished uh, overtly, you know, or in a you know, subtle way, right? That they feel genuinely like, wow, I, I can share, you know, because that's where the that's where the goodness is, where it's it's a bit messy. Uh, Scott Belsky, he's the head of um, Adobe, you know, chief product uh, officer. You know, he talks about being on the edge of reason as a collective group, right? And, you know, and, and I think what he's expressing is, so we have to kind of be in a, in a bit of a fuzzy, call it an art zone, that we haven't been as much in, if we speak traditionally about you know, how business or leadership has operated in the past or culture, right? A lot of it has been very oriented toward a scientific, you know, have the answers approach, mm-hmm. efficiency, effectiveness. But this is where that wave of co-creation, it's not only possible, it actually, if you look at a company like Nike, right? Uh, we've spent a little time, we spent time with with them and you could actually chart this based on the data as to the difference between their investment and culture. And it's in the investment in the things that we're talking about, which is, Okay. So practically speaking, you know, about meetings, give people five to 10 minutes to check in, right? And it could be the one-on-one meeting or in that group meeting. And it's a small thing, right? Maybe it's a 10 or 15 to 20% 
investment of time. But what we see is, if you look at the comparative performance between Nike, and, and we've charted this based on both internal culture and external perception of culture. So uh, we partnered with a company called Verve, and they actually chart this with customers. They ask them the question is, how, 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 how much belonging do you feel with your shoes, right? Or with your, uh, your, the products you're using? And, and then they can gauge essentially out external culture, right? Of impact of, and so with Nike, the difference between them and Asics and Skechers and other brands is not just like 3X or 4X, it's 10X difference as far as performance, but hmm. based on just like a 15 to 20% consistent investment in culture. And then also with the first principles, we talked about it before. They're very clear. There's actually a guy named Rob, I forget his last name, but when they were early makings, you know, Phil Knight, they were doing their thing, you know, business-wise. And Rob just one day starts to intuit these principles about Nike's future. You may, you've probably seen these online, but he starts posting them on people's doors. And mm-hmm. this historian of Nike, he, asked, he went around and asked people, he's like, was this real? Like, did, like or, well, was it just Rob being Rob or was it like something that was meaningful? And mm-hmm. everybody, people started to confirm it. They said, yeah, he actually intuited what the mm-hmm. first principle, and you could say the first principles of their future culture. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a little interstellar of us, right, to go there. But that idea that like your future self, but the future self of the culture, but those are powerful for grounding people. And it's obvious. I mean, Nike's success explains a lot, right? Um, we did that kind of work at Apple as well. And it was not a fixer upper. There was not as much pain <laughs> as with the yeah. Dell experience. But theirs, it was simple. It was like, hey, we have pain points when we go new territories, AirPods, mm-hmm. Apple Watch, the VR, uh, you know, the headset with at Apple. Um, literally, the secret lab was right next door to my office. And so I'd see people go in and come out really excited. And, uh, you know, these are things that that uh, occasionally get friction, right, or struggles. Yeah. But the challenge for Apple was how do we go from thinking different? And that could be, in the extreme, that could be an individual approach to really working different together and mm-hmm. connecting dots horizontally as well as vertically. And uh, you know, to their credit, they you know, took it to the next level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot, lot of things that are occurring to me while you're talking about this. I can't remember what book I read, but it was you know, more philosophical in nature and discussed you know, that one of the unique traits of human beings that separated us from animals in the beginning was our, our ability to create things that didn't already exist in nature. Like the earliest forms of art that we find are things that you know, depicted things that didn't really exist yet. And uh, that that's, you know, one of our, our abilities is to to create things that don't already exist. And so having almost like a disincentive, sometimes incentives get us really channeled towards one way of thinking and limit our creativity to, to solve problems. And so being careful of the incentives you, you put in an organization uh, that might stifle the creativity for the future, right? Yeah, that too. You know, and it could be, are there ways to tie this to a team success, right? To the impact that the team is having. Uh, and we've seen that, I, I've seen this work really well um, when they can, you know, companies could solve for a reward system that it does both, right? It's an and answer. You know, if you look at Apple, it's teamwork, innovation, and results. Those things are all important. The tension that lies between them is, you know, it's a good ecosystem. You know, I always love asking guests, You've had a, a life of experience and you've kind of isolated, you know, in some cases, some of these principles that you personally um, put into motion over your career or, you know, some of them you've learned along the way. What what advice would you give to the 21-year-old Chris Deaver, knowing everything that you've known now? Well, I'll caveat that with, um, I share some advice with my son occasionally. And I, I went on a, 
I went on a coaching spree with him one time. This is like 45 minutes of like just heavy coaching related to stuff. You know, it was emotional. There were some things going on, you know, with his life, but he's a great kid. So we end off and I, we hug each other. I tell him I love him. I go to my room. He comes back later. He knocks on my door and he's like, hey, can you coach my friends? And I said, uh, I, I don't know. I said, why? And he goes, well, they were listening to the whole thing. I'm like, <laughs> what? He's like, yeah, he had, he had his AirPods in and they were listening apparently. Oh my God. Really? Because there was a lot of like, I mean, say personal, but it was, you know, yeah. it was some serious stuff. And I said, oh, can you keep me posted next time that I'm on, you know, on a live mic? <laughs> You're live streaming to TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I'm finding, I mean, I would say like largely it'd be like, keep going, right? Sometimes the struggles that we see feel so overwhelming. I mean, there's so much going on, right? Where they could feel like, where's my place in the world? I mean, I, th- I keep thinking, I go back in my mind to like Walt Disney when he was younger, he would go to the train station in Kansas City and uh, or Missouri and the one to LA he'd stand there and he thought all my dreams somebody else is dealing like it's already been done and that was his that was his like call it a pre-regret or, or a feeling of just you know kind of that pain right and now he turned that pain into power but I think that's I think part of it is is like don't get discouraged you know we have a mental health crisis but to simplify it down or boil it down I'd say find a way to yes be successful but also to create shared dreams, right? It's not just a dream board. It's a shared dream board. How do you be brave, you know, with those you love? And, you know, like Charlie Munger talks about this with Warren Buffett. I mean, they're a classic example. Like they've been brave together for a long time and it's just, it's unbelievable, right? The results they get from that. Just imagine what you can do, right? With, uh, in, in building with others. Uh, I think that's something to, you know, we haven't explored it enough on the educational front. We have not explored enough on the business front. On a personal level, that will unlock so many things in your world. It will unlock your dreams and accelerate and amplify things like you wouldn't believe. It's just amazing. This is awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate the conversation. For for people to dive deeper into this, they can read your book, Brave Together, uh, Lead by Design, Spark Creativity and Shape the Future with the Power of Co-Creation. I love it. Any other direction you want to point our listeners to for resources? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I just add uh, the website, you know, www.bravecore.co. Uh, we've got a lot of resources on there and, and uh, you know, content that can help power what you're doing. Yeah, thank you for this great conversation. A lot of, a lot of wisdom. Thank you, Adam. I, I've enjoyed it. It's been fun. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and to stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and on Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. And thanks for listening.